Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to Canine Hijinks. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, welcome to our listeners and welcome to Dr. Mandy Blackwelder. Hello there. So I have known Dr. Blackwelder, who I tend to simply refer to as Mandy, for several years now. And while I'm happy that I know her, the reason I got to know her in the first place wasn't so awesome because we met when my Border Collie gadget was two and had a soft tissue injury in his elbow and I needed a rehab vet to help him recover from it. And since then, she's actually helped me rehab him through a second unrelated injury and more recently, my young puppy's shoulder injury. So Mandy, I have to say... I'm glad that I'm talking to you now for a reason that doesn't involve my dogs being injured. I never, I always tell clients, I am never offended if you say, I don't want to see you. I'm like, yes, no problem. (laughs) Before we go any further, um, let's start with our usual, what have you been doing with your dogs lately, Alyssa? So I have actually been to a couple of agility trials recently with uh, gadget and that has been super fun to get back to. And so I have really been enjoying that. Awesome. I have been working on weave poles with Sprite. Weave poles take a while. So focusing mostly on the weave poles. And Mandy, I'm sure you've been working with a million dogs doing all kinds of things. I, I do work with a million dogs. And unfortunately my dog is, you know, the cobbler's kid that has no shoes. She <laughs> Uh, she is a, a love bunny and that's her job. <laughs> oh, there's nothing that's wrong a great with that. job. So let's introduce Dr. Blackwelder a little more formally. Dr. Mandy has a bachelor's degree in microbiology from Colorado State University. Following that, she interned at the Denver Zoo and then started veterinary school. After earning her doctorate in veterinary medicine in 1998, she moved to Wisconsin and practiced in the dairy vet industry before finding her niche in small animal medicine in Grants Pass, Oregon for the next 14 years. In 2002, Dr. Mandy took an acupuncture certification through Colorado State University. In 2013, she became certified in physical therapy and rehabilitation at the University of Tennessee and now runs the successful Healing Arts Animal Clinic in Beaverton, Oregon. Healing Arts provides veterinary acupuncture, pet rehabilitation therapy, physical therapy, and athletic conditioning to the dogs and cats of Portland, Oregon. Through manual therapies, animal acupuncture, laser, ultrasound, underwater treadmill, and creating tailored individual home exercises, the team at Healing Arts strives to bring your injured pet back to speed, keep your elderly pet as an active member of the family, return your obese pet back to a functional friend, and keep your athletic pet at the peak of his performance. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you. So, Mandy, we like to ask our guests what dogs they have in their home and what types of activities you like to do with them. We've heard a little bit about your snuggle bunny, So, but tell us about your dog. So 
So I have a 12-year-old Staffordshire Bull Terrier who came to me because I had a client in Grants Pass who had Staffies, was the only Staffies I'd ever met in my life. And I met her one dog when she brought her to me for a neck issue. And I took one look at this dog and I was like, oh my God, if this dog ever has puppies, I want one. Which is kind of funny because I'm, I love puppies in my clinic, but I'm not a puppy person in my house and, and would in that, you know, would probably never buy a dog and all of that, but just completely fell in love with the breed. Promptly diagnosed that dog with a neck issue that she decided to spay her, but I continued to take care of that dog for 15 years. So when I was ready for, when, when my Shih Tzu passed away, I um, asked her to help me find a staffy. And so she started the, the look, the look for me at that point, I was in Portland. She was in Grant's path and she emailed me the next day. And she's like, you're not going to believe this. There's a staffy in Grant's Pass. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I scrolled down and there was a show picture of her and with her owner, who was also her handler. And um, turns out she was somebody who worked at my practice at one point, And I had no <laughs> idea she had staffies. <laughs> so it was a complete match made in heaven. And um, our intention was for her to be a service dog for my handicapped son. And we did lots of training with her and she's terrific with that, but she has a thirst for Chihuahua blood. Oh. Um, and so she did not become a service dog other than what she does in her home. Um, but she is his best friend in the whole world. And uh-huh. then we are adding a canine companions for independence dog, which we have been um, preparing for, for three years with that dog will come in July. So oh, that's exciting. Ooh, that's super so exciting. exciting. That's awesome. Well, that's thank awesome. you for sharing that. So I am currently also having some rehab work done with my dog, Fractal. He has some kind of toe injury that is came from a shoulder injury, is just a toe injury, one of those really fun, hard to diagnose things. And because Alyssa and I have now seen the value of working with a rehabilitation vet, we wanted to explore uh, this topic more for our listeners. So to begin with, can you tell us about what it means to be a rehab vet and how exactly you help dogs? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think of it kind of as a physical therapist for people, you know, kind of all the same things that you would see a human physical therapist for. The difference being a physical therapist has simply their niche. They're not going to talk to you about hearts or they're not going to talk to you about, you know, thyroid and those kinds of things. They may suggest them. um, But as a rehab vet, as all vets, we kind of do general stuff, too. So um, when you go into rehabilitation as a veterinarian, you have to have a veterinary degree, um, a DVM or a VMD. Um, and, um, and then in the United States, there are a few certification programs. The first one was from Tennessee, CCRP, um, which stands for canine, Certified Canine Rehabilitation Practitioner. And then there's a CCRT, which is out of Colorado, um, that's Certified Canine Rehabilitation Therapist. Um, so those are the two current accepted titles at this time. So that's definitely what you would want to be looking for in a rehabilitation veterinarian. And I will just make a quick note about um, veterinary 
acronyms. Uh, so you heard DVM and VMD. They like to just rearrange things uh, in the veterinary industry. You will also hear CVT, LVT, RVT, which stands for a licensed, certified, or registered veterinary technician, respectively. And it depends on what state you live in, what kind of credentials are given, or what the particular program is. So that just for our listeners, a quick overview. Um, yes. Don't don't think too hard about them. <laughs> So what led you down the path of rehab medicine versus staying with traditional veterinary care? So I always kind of headed that direction. So medicine in general has never been traditional to me because I grew up in Boulder, Colorado in the 70s. So it was very granola, um, except my parents were like Beaver Cleaver's parents. But so acupuncture, herbs, chiropractic, you know, all of that stuff was part of my life from from early on. Um, And when I went through veterinary school, which is aging me greatly, but there was no acupuncture program. There was no rehab program. Like none of that stuff was available. Um, Colorado State started that program actually the year before I graduated. Um, And so then went the acupuncture route and always had my eyeball on what was happening rehab wise and just never had an opportunity to do it. Got married, had kids, you know, all of that. And I simply hated my job. And I finally called my parents and I said, can I borrow the money to do this? Um, (laughs) That was, you know, life-changing for me. I mean, I truly feel like that is my calling in life because it is the ultimate in holistic medicine. It lets me do Western medicine. It lets me do Eastern medicine. And it lets me look at function. And that's our challenge with veterinarians in general is that we are taught anatomy and we are taught dysfunction, but we are not taught function. And that is, that's true in in human medicine as well. And that's where your physical therapist bridge that for you is what is this muscle supposed to be doing or this nerve or whatever. And if it's not working, what are all the compensatory mechanisms that are happening in the rest of the body? Because that's really important. You can't just be like, you're a knee. You're not just a knee, you're a knee that now you're turning your foot so the side of your ankle hurts and your lower back is upset and your thoracic thoracic back is upset because you're leaning all your weight forward, like all of those types of things. Yeah, I. it seems like when I've had injuries prior to knowing that rehab vets were a thing, you know, if you go to your traditional vet with some kind of injury or soft tissue injury, they're going to give you some painkillers and anti-inflammatories and tell you to put your dog in a crate for a couple of weeks and see how they go. And so traditional vets don't tend to have all the same tools and tricks to actually solve whatever the issue is, unless it's a break of a bone or something that they can perform surgery on. Right. Yep. But all the soft tissue stuff that's yep. not in their wheelhouse. That is changing because I think most veterinary schools, I mean, I know many do, I don't know if all do now have a rehab pro a rehab, you know, program Mm -hmm. within the school. Um, And so vets are coming out of school, having done a rehab rotation. And so that's creating a little bit of, of change in their minds, which is, which is helpful. Um, So so go see younger vets. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's totally true with surgeons as well. You know, so many surgeons went to school, you know, and it was like, you crate rest that dog and and no offense to surgeons, but surgeons tend to have a little bit of an ego that goes with it. And so they're like, Hey, I fixed the dog and I don't want anybody to screw up what I did. Mm -hmm, And so, but 
the younger docs that have gone through their internship and residency with rehab after their surgeries are like, you know, you don't even have to convince them. They're like, well, you need rehab. Um, So the younger docs in Portland, they're constantly sending me things that the older docs wouldn't dream of. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I worked in the veterinary industry for a long time and it's very, very interesting when you start learning what veterinarians learn about in school and to some extent what they don't. So Mm -hmm. there were, I believe, two schools in the country, and this was already 10-ish years ago, that had communications programs as part of the education and and which is kind of fascinating when you think about the fact that you want to treat the dog the way to be able to treat the dog because as they as yeah. the chief medical officer used to like to say pets don't have credit cards the people have credit cards yeah. so you need to help the people understand you know what you're thinking and what you need to to do so it's an industry with a lot going on right now that's for sure yeah. And there's so, really too much to teach in four years. Right. I mean, well, yeah. In human mm-hmm. medicine, they go to medical school and then they do internship and residency in their specialty. Even if you're a right. general practitioner, you go through internship and residency to do that. And yet veterinarians in that four years are required to be able to do all of that for every species and communicate too. Um, so yeah. it, it's certainly challenging. Yes. My, my version of that is communication travels down the leash. Oh, that I like that. You can't get it to your person. It's not going to get to the dog. Yeah. So, and I didn't know this for a long time, but veterinarians to pass the test at the end, which I want to say the NAVALI, but I think that's, that's the vet tech test. Uh, the right? national board. Yeah. Just the national board. The yeah. national boards. There is a large animal component as well. Correct. Absolutely. So yeah. even if you're going to practice small animal medicine, you still have to be able to do understand about horses, cows, and pigs, yeah. right? Which I can't imagine. I and can't sheep. imagine I'm going to, and sheep, I'm going to treat dogs and cats. And it's really important that I know all about pigs. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's, and because the majority of people go through school to do small animal, yep. um, that piece is annoying to them, right? Which uh-huh. I understand. And they've talked about, even, even when I was in vet school, which I've been out for 23 years, they were talking about dividing the boards. But then that also means that the boards of every state have to be divided. But then the other piece of that puzzle is that we are all certified to be disease officers. So if there was like a mad cow, like veterinarians could be called into that role. Like that's part of our job. Um, And so that is why it stuck that way, is that if there were some sort of meat emergency, (laughs) you would need a lot of veterinarians. I mean, think about now with the pandemic, you know, that we've that they're like, you know, certifying dentists to give vaccines, right? It's sort yeah. of that same that same concept. If we had some sort of um, massive outbreak of some sort of problem in our cattle, they, they theoretically want people to do that. Now, if you're a purely cat vet and you're going to go treat cattle, that would be pretty amusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it is interesting to think about it from the other way around too, because something else that I know is fairly common is for veterinarians, honestly, particularly women to go into equine mm-hmm. medicine. And then as soon as they start a family, they're like, oh, being on call and needing to go out for a colicking horse in the middle of the night doesn't, doesn't work out so well. And then they switch over to well, um, and, small and animal. I mean, we're coming to it from the standpoint of being in a city, 
when right. you are in, you know, I started out in a rural community, you do everything, right? You, know, you do everything that's on that piece of property. Even though we think of small animal versus large animal in rural communities, which, you know, is a big portion of the country, yeah. it's animal practices. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Okay. Sorry. Well, I really I, feel bad about our your <laughs> rabbit hole, okay. our tangents. This I feel like a fascinating should... discussion. Uh, get us back on track. I've noticed like with Jet's last injury, I needed a special type of ultrasound and the vet clinics that had it were the ones who did horses also. Yeah. In general. So that was kind of interesting. So to go back to uh, rehab vets versus regular vets, what what exactly are the injuries and illnesses that you tend to treat versus yeah. a traditional so vet treats? We do, and it's it's really variable from practice to practice. It kind of, and everybody kind of has their, their little niche. So rehab vets in general see elderly patients that were trying to maintain mobility, which is, you know, if you're that person that loves to follow through with your clients and, and you know, doesn't mind the old guys that can hardly move is... For me, that's one of my favorite things to do because it's creating this beautiful quality of life for as long as possible. So the older guys that are having trouble, you know, with their hind end or something, being able to give them extra strength so they can go on a longer walk is huge. It's it's so exciting. So that's a big piece of what we do. Um, obviously, we treat things post-operatively, um, total hip replacements, tons of cruciates, Achilles tendon injuries, elbow surgery, um, OCD lesions, those kinds of things, getting those guys back up to speed. We also see the non-operative patients, you know, dogs that have a ruptured cruciate that also have dilated cardiomyopathy. Those guys, we do braces for them or dogs that have a, a rupture, a partially ruptured Achilles tendon. Those guys in a degenerative situation, the surgeons go, I don't want to touch that. Um, so they send them to me. And then conditioning, you know, dogs that are um, athletic dogs that need extra conditioning or dogs like we see one dog that is a agility dog that has IBD. So is on a low dose of prednisone. Prednisone causes a little muscle wasting. So that dog gets mm. in the treadmill and runs extra um, just to try to overcome that. So, um, so lots of, lots of flavors. There are some veterinarians that practices that focus mostly on sporting dogs. And then there's, you know, ours is less sporting dogs, although we do see sporting dogs, but we do less of the conditioning piece and more of the, of the elderly dog piece. Um, as we grow, that will change, but we are continuing to grow. Yeah. I think is half your sporting dog clientele me. Because it, it no. feels like that sometimes. <laughs> I, see, I see all of all. I see tons of agility peeps for sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's been a couple of illnesses or injuries that my dogs have had that if they were just pet dogs, you wouldn't think twice about it. You know, but yeah. because we're watching them so closely in their physical movements and seeing some of the really subtle differences in their stride or in their jumping or whatever. Um, I think we can be a little more sensitive and wanting to have them looked at. And Well, and you guys catch those things early. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that is contributing to veterinary net medicine exploding during the pandemic is now everybody's home and going, yeah, right. is my dog limping? Yeah. You know, where the dog's probably been limping for six months or longer, <laughs> but they've never paid any attention because they're just not home, you know? Right. Yeah. 
I love the the cases like your guys where it's subtle because it really challenges my diagnostic skills and my palpation skills. Um, and so that, you know, that keeps me sharp for everybody else. Plus the sporting dogs are a blast because I ask him, you know, like Jet, and he's like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? <laughs> I love working with those guys. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, um, Fractal with his toe injury. Every time I tell someone Fractal's injured, they're like, oh no, I'm like, well, I mean, he's like sports injured. He's right, not, yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. if he's like the pitcher who has some kind of rotator cuff injury or something, like he can't pitch, he can still make himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and like get himself <laughs> dressed, but he, he can't do the, the sports thing. So he's, he's right. injured. And so it's very interesting that as a pet dog, you would not think there was anything wrong with him. He yeah, however, run around you know, and do whatever. That is if you are that, you know, that pitcher that, you know, it, let's say you do have a rotator cuff injury, but you're not a pitcher, you should be paying attention to that. And we don't right. as pet owners and we often don't as humans because right. down the road, you know, you got to be thinking long term, you know, down the road, mm-hmm. you're going to have arthritis in there, you're going to have a decreased mobility, all of those kind of things, whether we're talking about, you know, a ruptured cruciate that nobody's paying attention to, or, um, or a toe injury that is just this chronic owie for the dog. And now the dog is bearing weight weird. And now it has right. arthritis in its elbow. Well, that, which has been my concern <laughs> so, primarily for fractal. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the piece that for me is, kind of my client awareness piece, whether you're sporting or not, Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, if you're seeing something that isn't going away with anti-inflammatories from your regular veterinarian, it might be worth checking out further for the longevity of your dog. I really wish I had known about that. We've talked about Daisy's injuries a little bit. She had surgery on her elbows when she was two, I think, because her front legs were kind of bowed out. I didn't know anything about rehab vets at the time. And so she went to the surgeon, she got her surgery, she was stuck in a crate for several weeks. And then slowly just, he said, get her back to normal. And that vet didn't refer me to a rehab vet. And I so wish I had known about that because while she didn't limp for a couple of years after that, it was just a slow decline, tons of arthritis, you know, and she had a really long sort of painful life supplemented with a lot of pharmaceuticals, but still, (laughs) if I had known about that so much earlier in her life, I feel like she could have had probably many more years that were less painful. Well, and the other piece of the puzzle is that you would have had skills to help. And that's the big thing about rehab vets is that we're coaches. We teach you, you know, so many of my patients that I see, uh, you know, like for example, dogs with intervertebral disc disease, you know, yeah, I can help you make your dog walk again, but really long-term, the other piece of the puzzle is you need a set of skills of teaching good core strength for your dog so that we can protect their back in the long-term. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's where the trick training ties in really well with rehab. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. So do you have typical breeds of dogs that you tend to see the same injuries on? Yes. I mean, there are definitely dogs that have you know, oh, this dog is a blah, therefore it must be, you know, this is going to be high on my list. So if you are a, let's say, large breed puppy and you are limping in a forelimb, I am looking for elbows and I'm looking for an OCD in the shoulder. I'm looking for all kinds of other things too. And it's really important not to get tunnel vision, but those go high up on my list. 
if you are a pit bull, a boxer, or a, an agility border collie, and you're limping in a hind limb, we're going to look at that stifle for a cruciate pretty quickly. Doesn't mean we don't look for other things, but, you know, so that's, you know, every breed kind of has their stuff that makes you go, hmm. And the more, the further I get into rehab, the more I learn about things that are breed specific, that there's no way you could have covered them all in vet school. Or maybe you did. And that was the day that I took a nap. I don't know. (laughs) But, But, you know, like dancing Doberman syndrome, um, shaky leg syndrome in Cocker Spaniels. You know, there's a lot of little, you know, little things that unless you're heavily into the breed, you may not know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also true. Just on a side note, that's also true of various things in blood work too. Um, certain breeds have, you know, blood work things that you go, oh, he's a greyhound. Of course, his hematocrit is 64. Where if I saw a 64 hematocrit in a Yorkie, I would be like, wow. So, um, and that's where kind of being specialty is exciting and fun for me is that I get to focus on those things. I get to have my niche where I really get to know stuff instead of feeling like I'm sort of touching everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love now that I have, I have my regular vet for kind of their vaccines. If they need x-rays, some of that kind of stuff, blood work, whatever. And then, and then I have this circle of the rehab vets and now I'm actually quite familiar with a surgeon. So, and they all sort of have their place. And if you put them together as a team, you really get a a better quality of care and real answers when you have tricky things Mm -hmm. to find injuries to find that is super helpful. So we've touched on this kind of topic a couple of times, but let's hit it real specifically. So if a dog has some kind of surgery and the surgeon prescribes crate rest, is that a protocol that you would agree with? Why or why not? In general, my answer would be no. And the reason that surgeons prescribe crate rest is that clients can be stupid. You know, (laughs) I mean, let's face it, like anybody who is in rural general practice knows that if you put a cast on a dog, that 50% of people are going to let the dog go in the in the lake. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, people just aren't smart about what oh. makes good sense sometimes. And so that kind of goes back to that, you know, the surgeon saying, go crate rest this dog so you don't mess up what I did. Mm-hmm. And I can respect that because then that client comes back and says, why didn't you do this right? When really they've been letting this dog run on the leg that they shouldn't be letting run on the leg. So right. that that's where that comes from. And it also comes from, depending on when you graduated from vet school, what you were what you were taught. And, and you may not know a lot about physical therapy. Um, however, if we look at it from the human side, if you had a, a meniscus repair or you had a total knee and the, the, the you know, surgeon came in and said, stay in your bed. And don't do anything but get up to pee for six weeks. Like they would lose their license so fast because that is absolute malpractice. Mm-hmm. And, and to a certain extent, that is true of our surgeons as well. Because when you are resting, you are losing muscle mass very okay. quickly. In humans, a week of bed rest, you lose 10% of your muscle mass. 10%. Wow. And so, I mean, that's true for dogs as well. The key here is to do it with guidance. And that's where rehab really comes in handy. And that's kind of where I sit on my surgeons a little bit. And I say, you guys, I'm the one that gets to sit on your client and be like, don't do that. Yes, do this. Don't do that. Yes, do this. Mm -hmm. 
The other piece is that every animal re re recovers a little bit differently. So let's say that we won't talk about any of your dogs because we don't jinx anybody, but let's say you have <laughs> Border Collie who has a TPLO who is a very conditioned agility dog. That dog, assuming everything went fine with surgery and we're able to keep that dog on a leash, which with agility folks is really hard. <laughs> that dog, you know, if you keep that dog under control, lots of those dogs by six weeks are back to, you know, 45 minutes of walking and, you know, lots of exercise and those kinds of things versus an out of condition lab that lays around most of the time. Um, that dog, we, you know, we're, we're, our expectations are different. So if you have a rehab professional involved, then I can be telling you, oh yeah, you can go up to 30 minute walking or, you know, you can add on here or there. Right in a shorter period of time, or I can be putting the brakes on saying, hey, this is why you shouldn't be doing this. The other piece of that puzzle too is if we're talking about a joint surgery, joints need movement. If you have knee surgery as a human, they put you on one of those little machines that goes, you know, where your legs going around and around. <laughs> they put you on that the day of surgery. Wow. They have a physical therapist in there the day of surgery. So to then say, oh, six weeks, and then, yeah, you can go do PT if you want. Like, <laughs> what have we done to that joint? A joint's job is to move, and now we've frozen it? Right. Like, that is not appropriate. Yes, there are times you want to freeze a joint. If you have a torn Achilles, you need to freeze that joint. But that doesn't mean you don't touch it. That doesn't mean you don't pay attention to it. So that's really the, the big value. If more surgeons said, when you schedule your surgery, I want you to have the dog in between two and three weeks post-op to a rehab professional and we'll all work together, I think we would have so much better outcomes. The other piece of that puzzle is that rehab vets and rehab vet techs we're working, well, before COVID, we're working with you and we're lasering. And so we've got lots of time to talk, whereas mm -hmm. a surgeon, you do not. And mm -hmm. so you can do a lot of why, why this is important, why your dog should be, you know, if you have a lunatic of a border collie, why that <laughs> dog should be on a sedative so that he's not losing his mind. He's mm -hmm. frustrated. Let's help him be less frustrated versus just saying, hey, put your dog on a sedative, gotta go. You know, and, and then and that doesn't mean they're they're heartless. It just means their 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 business structure is different. They have things to do that don't involve long conversations. What I do, I can have a long conversation with you while I'm doing it. Yep. Yep. Which is part of why COVID sucks, frankly. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. So let's switch gears a bit and talk about elderly dogs because I, so I understand that's a big part of your clientele. What sure, kind of yeah. work do you do with older dogs and when, and when do you consider a dog to be old? So let's address the second one first. Old dogs are only old in their minds. <laughs> so, um, you know, I see dogs, like for example, my dog is 12 and she's a nut. I mean, she's a total nut. And then, you know, I see older dog, dogs that are 12 that are, that are old at 12. So some of it is breed. Some of it is your exercise, the amount of exercise the dog gets. Some of it just has to do with the overall attitude of the dog, just like people. Some people are old at 60. Some people are young at 100. Old to me, in my head, is more kind of broken down than age. And in older dogs, the big key with older dogs is how they use their body in space. 
So just like old people, I always tell people that if you have a little old lady that is walking down the street and she is very arthritic and doesn't do a lot with her body. She's that little old lady that's just barely moving. And you know, if she sneezes, she's going to fall and break a hip, right? Versus a little old lady that does Tai Chi. They may have the same amount of arthritis in their bodies, but the lady who does Tai Chi has this big space, her, her spatial awareness of her body, where her limbs are in space is completely different. And that is definitely the case for our older dogs. So when we have a dog that is arthritic, that moves regularly, that goes on walks, that, you know, does sits and stands and, you know, things like that, that still plays with their owner, plays tug, that dog has a totally different spatial awareness than a dog that is sedentary. So with older dogs and cats, our biggest things are, is your pain appropriately managed? I I would say that 80% of dog owners, sporting people aside, are not aware of the pain in their animal Um, because they don't complain. People complain. Dogs don't complain. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the pain management, anxiety management, older dogs get worried about not being able to do their job. Dogs, even if it means you're holding down the couch, that's your job or yelling at the FedEx man, or, you know, little dachshunds that patrol the fence, you know, those guys, (laughs) they all have a job. And if they're not able to do their job, they don't see as well. They don't hear as well. They don't move as well. They can't get down the steps to bite the mailman. Those things are, uh, that worries them. So anxiety is a big piece of that for these guys. Mm. And then um, the next piece of the puzzle is the kind of the coaching piece for people about keeping their dogs moving. A lot of times people say, well, we don't go for walks anymore because he's sore. And I say, okay, in my old dog, I count walks by number of houses. I don't count them by blocks. I don't count them by miles. So if your old dog has always gone for a walk with you and then you stop, they're like, wait a minute, why? What, what, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Why can't we do my job? Versus, hey, we're going for a walk and you go to the end of the driveway and you come back, that dog settles right into his bed and is like, okay, did my job. Um, so those kinds of things are, are really important. So the coaching piece is essential. Pain management is essential. And then in terms of what we're physically doing with them, laser, underwater treadmill, and exercises for the owners to do at home, exercises often being the most important because that's a daily piece, to increase their mobility, how well their joints move, how well their blood flows. Can we get weight off of them? Can we maintain muscle mass so we're maintaining their joints better, even if those joints have a lot of arthritis? That's a whole show in and of itself. So uh, we've talked about kind of regular vets versus rehab vets. And one of the things I've always wondered is, can rehab vets prescribe medicines just like your regular vet can? How does that piece intertwine? They they absolutely can. And it just kind of depends on vet to vet relationships and philosophy. So for myself, I try not to prescribe um, mostly because I want to be sure I'm maintaining an appropriate relationship with the referring veterinarian. So um, just like veterinarians are worried about their prescriptions going to online pharmacies, I want to help them maintain that piece of revenue. But also, if I'm prescribing something, I send a mess, I send my report over to that to the veterinary clinic. That doesn't make it into their record. And now they prescribe something. The dog could be on 
two things that don't go together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I tend not to prescribe where other folks say, hey, if you're not taking care of it, I will. And there's nothing wrong with that either. There's nothing wrong with either way. It just kind of depends on um, what you're doing and the communication piece. I'm a psycho about making sure that my referring veterinarians know exactly what's happening. To me, we are team jet or team fractal rather than I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as it should be. And I, if you do have a surgeon involved, that that kind of completes that puzzle, right? Absolutely. Or even if you have, you know, you know, in certain cases, you know, I'll loop in the dermatologist or the internist or whatever, anybody who needs that information needs it and shouldn't have to be begging for it. Yeah. Yeah. What would your advice be to keep your dog as healthy as possible into their older years? Keep them moving, keep them lean. Those are the two biggies. The mental stimulus of movement is so important. It's not just that you get out and walk. Like so many people say, oh, we have 10 acres. Okay, great. Like, I love that you have 10 acres, but go with them, yeah. you know, go with them. And and what are they doing? And are they digging? And, you know, all those kinds of things. If you live in town, oh, I have a backyard. Yeah, but, you know, you need to leave your house too. So, you know, getting out for walks, sniffing all the sniffs, reading all the females, that's really important for their mental health as well as their physical health. The the movement piece as well is there's moseyers and there's walkers. Moseying is lovely, except it's not exercise. It's not keeping their gait pattern normal. Um, and so I do like people to, you know, find a stretch where you really can get a, a decent pace going. And if you're an old dog, that decent pace is slow, but at least it's consistent. And so that's a, that's a biggie for me. Like I always tell people, if you can do nothing, you can't afford to come and see me, you know, move your dog within limits. Obviously it depends on the pain management situation, but, and then um, appropriate weight management is huge. When, you know, just like for humans, if you're heavier, it's hard on your joints and your muscles are not as developed as they should be. So you're more prone to injury. So those are the biggies. I can't tell you how many times I've taken my dogs into the regular vet and they're like, oh, they're in such good shape because they're not overweight. Not one of my no. dogs is ever overweight. And it's rare, I think, that they see dogs who are really, overweight. Oh, it's really rare. It was kind of funny. Fractal went to the vet for some vaccines and uh, he came back at 57 pounds and they rated him as ideal body condition. I was like, dude, you are fat. <laughs> <laughs> That perspective is so super weird. And the same thing, which all of my sporting people encounter, particularly with labs, is that people are like, God, don't you feed that dog? Mm-hmm. So you know, and skinny. I tell people all the time, like this is one of my speeches to clients is if your dog has orthopedic disease, I want your your neighbor to look over the fence and go, don't you feed that dog? Right. Uh-huh. That's a little extreme, obviously, but that's the idea. You want that dog on the over lean side instead yes. of the over chubby side. Well, and didn't they add another categorization to the scale for dogs that was athletic? that there's was, cause they, it was sort of like yeah. you were either ideal, which uh-huh. it, not fluffy, but not, you're not sort of lean mm-hmm. or underweight. And so a lot of athletic dogs were being classified as underweight because right. yeah, you can well, see so their ribs, but do, we used to do zero to five. Yeah. And, and for that reason now, and I think it was Purina that led that charge it's now one to nine. Nine is gigantically fat. One is is emaciated. Five is sort of your regular dog. And then four is your condi- conditioned dog. Got That's it. kind of how that works. And four is ideal for everyone as long as you're conditioned. You can be yeah, right. 
or yeah right that makes sense if our listeners aren't local to Beaverton how would you suggest they find a rehab vet in their area So you can always Google rehabilitation veterinarian and see what you find. Here's the keys. You want to be looking for that CCRP or CCRT. You want somebody who is certified because that means that they have proven their knowledge. They've taken a course, they've passed a test, they've presented cases, that type of thing. Two, you want to know whether we're talking about a vet or a tech. And that doesn't mean that technicians cannot be excellent rehabilitation therapists, But as a technician, you are not allowed to diagnose. So you can say here, I'm feeling tension here. I'm feeling pain here. The dog is reactive here, but they can't call it biceps tenosynovitis. They are not allowed to prescribe. Um, I mean, they're not allowed to diagnose, nor are they allowed to prescribe. Um, They can make suggestions. So there's definitely a difference there. There's a huge debate among the veterinary community as to whether whether technicians should be allowed to have their own their own gig. And sadly, it's completely dependent upon the technician. Mm -hmm. There are technicians that are so careful about that line and do an amazing job. And then there are, you know, then the flip of that is folks that aren't worrying about their medical license. So it's sort of like, hey, throw them in the tank, give them a forced march. That's it's not appropriate. So that debate is going to continue because not everybody's, you know, embracing well, their importance there. And to add another sort of veterinary industry quirk to that whole conversation, you know, veterinary medicine is governed by state practice acts. So every state has different rules. And yeah. in different states, veterinary technicians are allowed to do different things. So there's always the line of diagnose, prescribe, perform surgery, that that's what, you know, veterinarians are allowed yeah. to do. And that's very, very consistent. But there are states where veterinary technicians are allowed to intubate for surgery and exactly. states where they are not. And they're they're not allowed to do sort of anything. So it depends a lot on the state. So it's a that's a very, very tricky issue. So I think that's a good point because you do see a lot of technicians that are running rehab type practices. Um, and I would also think you would be interested if you know, if you have any idea, which you may not, to look for the types of therapies that the different rehab vets are offering. Cause I know I was looking for a very specific type of laser therapy, which is why I've been taking fractal down to, to Salem. Um, even though Beaverton would be a lot closer. <laughs> yes. I had them come and talk to me. I just don't have the finances yet. Yeah. 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 We want, we want Mandy to have all the tools, all the things. Oh, yes. Let's, really let's give Mandy all the too. things. I'll get there. So I think that's great advice for finding a rehab veterinarian. If you are not local to our area, if folks are local, can you let them know where they can find you uh, you and more information about your clinic? Absolutely. So we are in Beaverton on the corner of Murray and Allen. We do see people from kind of a two hour radius, though, if I know there is someone I trust closer to you, I am happy to refer you. The most important thing is that you can get where you need to go. Um, as, as frequently as you need to go there. We, our hours are currently afternoons because I'm homeschooling my son. Um, so we may change a little bit of, of after, you know, next fall, but, and we are actually adding another veterinarian in July and hopefully a third in the winter. So we'll see. Ooh, a work in progress here. 
And what's your website? Oh, thanks. Uh, it's, it's our, it's our name, healingartsanimalcare.com. And we will have a link to that in our show notes so that awesome. people can find you. So thank you. Thank you for oh, coming. You're this very was fascinating. Welcome. Thank you for having me guys. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.